Oh, got to hear some real confusion as I thought I was preaching from 1 Peter chapter 3 and it turned out that somehow I had turned back to Hebrew to 1 Peter chapter 2 <clears throat> in my studies and never noticed. I had it written down all the way through my notes that I was in 1 Peter 3 online. I posted it as 1 Peter chapter 3. I did go back and change that, so probably that's going to cause some real confusion now. But <clears throat> the nice thing was <clears throat> that the text last week was dead to sin and alive to God, and it lays a good foundation for what we're going to talk about today. So maybe <clears throat> maybe God chose to use my senior moment as something that <clears throat> he could lay a foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Briefly, we're going to talk about baptism. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> probably not as, as you would expect. <clears throat> well, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 20. In fact, actually, I'm going to back up <clears throat> verses 18 through 22 because <clears throat> I want you to get the context. Um, <clears throat> about three weeks ago, we talked about this. It says, For Christ also has once suffered for sin. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive <clears throat> by the Spirit, <clears throat> by which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes, sometimes were disobedi disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, <clears throat> while the ark was being prepared, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now here's where we're starting today. The like figure, the flood, the like figure or picture, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God <clears throat> by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> who has gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. <clears throat> and we're going to move on from there into chapter 4. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh <coughs> has ceased from sin, <coughs> that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our lives may suffice us to have wrought the, w the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness and lusts and excess of wines, re wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, <clears throat> wherein they, that is those that we were with, <clears throat> think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, <clears throat> who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick, that means the living, and the dead. <clears throat> For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. For the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. <clears throat> and above all things, have fervent charity, that means the agape love, uh, among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, <clears throat> let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. There's <clears throat> a lot there, but <clears throat> the first thing I wanted to touch on was the issue in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3, when he talks about the flood being a picture of baptism. <clears throat> so how is the Genesis flood a picture of baptism? On <clears throat> in verses 18 through 20, which we read, Peter reminded us that Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of Christ, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, <clears throat> by the Holy Spirit, went and preached through Noah <clears throat> while the ark was being prepared. So the people that are still today in Hades, and they were then as well, had heard the gospel through Noah for 120 years while the ark was being built, rejected it, says they were disobedient to that gospel, not just disobedient to the law, disobedient to the gospel. They didn't believe it. <clears throat> and that now they are awaiting final judgment. The initial judgment was the flood itself. <clears throat> the flood judged the whole world, and I say, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> Allergies are just so much fun. I can recommend them heartily. <clears throat> I remember a friend of mine asked me how his allergies were glorifying God. And the answer is, the allergies themselves might not, but your response to them can. <clears throat> so, please God... Give me the ability to respond in such a way as to glorify God. <clears throat> okay, the reason I say the initial judgment was the flood, because that judged the whole world. The whole world died in the flood, <clears throat> except for those aboard the ark. They are still awaiting final judgment. When we read in Revelation chapter 20, <clears throat> we see that all of the dead, the unrighteous dead, are standing before God, and all of them are judged and cast into the lake of fire. That's the final judgment. <clears throat> right now they're, I don't know, in a holding tank, if you want to say, it's a, a waiting room for hell, for, proper, for the lake of fire, I should say. <clears throat> Pardon me. In the King James Bible, the word hell is always a translation of one of three words. Uh, one of them in the New Testament is always Hades. And it just means the place of the dead, but it's specifically now means the place of the unrighteous dead. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the identical word in Hebrew was Sheol. And it meant the place of the dead too, but up until the resurrection and ascension of Christ, specifically the ascension of Christ, you can read about this in Ephesians chapter 4, up until that time, Sheol proper was divided into two halves, <clears throat> and they could see one another. We saw in Luke chapter 16 where... Yeah, Luke chapter 16, I think, uh, where Jesus told what seems like a parable to talk about the rich man and Lazarus. It's not a parable. The parables never name people. The parables always say a certain man went down to Jericho. A certain man was, uh, you know, borrowed some money. A certain man did this, did that, and the other thing. Those are parables. <clears throat> this one names somebody and said he was laying here. He died. He went to Abraham's bosom, which was a like a Jewish 
euphemism for the place of the dead on the righteous side. <clears throat> He's with Father Abraham. <clears throat> and the rich man outside whose gate he had been waiting, hoping for food, <clears throat> also died. And it says in Sheol, or in Hades, actually, in the New Testament. It says in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and looked across. He could see Lazarus, who he knew. <clears throat> and he could see that Lazarus was with Abraham. And he called to Abraham and said, send Lazarus, give me some water. Oh, really? You couldn't give him anything while you were alive. Now you want him to leave paradise. By the way, that was what paradise was at that time. And come give you water in hell. Doesn't work that way. <clears throat> Abraham straightened out his thinking. We know that story. <clears throat> so that is where the righteous dead were up until the time of Jesus' ascension and uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses <clears throat> 7 through 11, he talks ab about the fact that when Jesus ascended, he took those people with him. They're no longer there. He emptied the waiting room of heaven and took them into heaven proper. <clears throat> Why couldn't they go before? The way hadn't been opened yet. In Hebrews chapter 2, 10 verse 19 we see that we enter in through the veil that is to say his flesh there was a veil in the proper in the tent the temple the physical temple in jerusalem what happened to the veil when jesus died it tore from top to bottom god tore this by the way when we talk about veils we're not talking about the stuff that women put a veil on their hat you know this isn't a see-through veil this is something that thick a piece of tapestry that you couldn't have torn with a tractor. And God ripped it from top to bottom. <clears throat> Signifying that the way is open now. Okay. Jesus spent three days in paradise. Paradise was the place of the righteous dead prior to the ascension. It was in the heart of the earth. <clears throat> Jesus said he would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But he told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's how we know it was in the middle of the earth. It was someplace out of our sight, but not in heaven proper. After his ascension, it was up. If you want to read about that, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, and Paul talks about going up to paradise. Yeah, by that time it was up. <clears throat> but Hades proper is still in the middle of the earth someplace. I don't know where, I don't want to know. But there are people suffering today in torment that spent their whole life rebelling against God, and they're, they're only waiting to go into the lake of fire. So this is, this is a serious deal. Okay, We don't talk very much about it because <clears throat> we don't like to talk about that. <clears throat> but that still raises the question, when we get to verses 21 and 22, and it says that, Okay, this is what happened to those people before the flood. That's where they are now. We got that. But and suddenly in verse 21 and 22, he says that that was a picture of baptism. Really? How? Well, the first thing we think is, well, yeah, okay, it was, flood, it was water, it was flood, and baptism's water, right? No. How come no? Well, because it says baptism doth now save us. Does water baptism save you? No. In fact, does water baptism do any of the things <clears throat> that we're going to see <clears throat> baptism does? 
Let's step back a second. When the flood came, Noah and his family and all the animals in the ark were separated, that's a key word, from the whole world by the flood. Actually, by the closing of the door on the ark. Once God closed the door, it was over. They were separated. The flood immediately came, swept everybody else away. They were separated physically. <clears throat> they had been separated spiritually because these were believers that went aboard that ark. They were separated spiritually before they went aboard. The day you trusted Jesus as your Savior, the day you were born again, you were separated from the world spiritually. <clears throat> But death always has to do with separation of some sort. So the people that are on the ground were not only separated from Noah by the closing of that door. In a few minutes or hours or days, they were separated from their, from their own bodies. Their spirit and soul, the, the non-material portion of them, was separated from their physical bodies. We call that physical death. The only way we know that we have all three, a body and a soul and a spirit, are, is because the New Testament says so. Otherwise, it gets a little confusing. <clears throat> but when we separate permanently the physical body from the spirit and soul, we call that physical death. Okay? It always has to do with separation. Adam and Eve, when Adam ate that fruit, both of them were spiritually separated from God, not just out of fellowship like a believer. They were separated from him. They were under judgment. <clears throat> God restored them with a blood sacrifice there in Genesis chapter 3, immediately afterwards. So they had restored fellowship, restored positionally. They were no longer separated from God. Had they died in their separated from God original status, they'd be waiting for the lake of fire today, just like the people at Noah's time. I was on God's death row from the time I was born to the time I was 18 and a few months. I'm not sure when I was born again. We have people here in this church that were born again when they were little children. I wasn't. <clears throat> okay. But had I died prior to that time, I would be with those people from Noah's day waiting for eternal judgment. Okay. All right, so this baptism of the flood, the flood separated, did some separation. So we're still left with, and what baptism are we talking about? <clears throat> Maybe we need to <clears throat> initially talk about what is baptism? What, what does it mean? Well, the Greek word for baptism is actually baptizo. We already talked about that. But it just means dip. And when Jesus dipped the sop in the cup and gave it to Judas, the word there was bapto, a form of baptize. Um, why they translate it dip there and no place else? Well, it's not no place else, but every place else where the word baptized is used, <clears throat> they just transliterated it. It means moved it over from Greek into English. Well, King James was the head of the Anglican Church, and he authorized translating the King James Bible. And had they said that everybody went to John the Dipper to get dipped, um, probably he wouldn't have gone through with that permission to translate that Bible. Okay, because they were practicing sprinkling. And no, the word baptize means dip. It does not mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean just get wet. It means dip. For the purpose of what? Now we're getting down to it. They still use this word when they're dyeing cloth. If they dip a piece of cloth into a particular dye pot, whatever color dye pot <clears throat> they chose, that piece of cloth is permanently identified with that dye pot, whatever color it was. Okay. 
Sure, it might fade later on, but it's, usually it won't fade to a completely different color. There are there are dyes that'll, uh, with exposure to ultraviolet light, they'll fade to a different color, but we're not talking about those. Okay. All right, why is that important? Because when Jesus went to John the Baptist to be baptized, he was identifying himself with the message of John the Baptist, which was the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and it was because he's the king of that kingdom. <clears throat> he identified himself with that message. The other people coming to John to be baptized were identifying themselves with a message saying they wanted to be the subjects of that kingdom. <clears throat> when people are baptized as believers in this age, in the church age, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus by saying something happened internally and I'm doing an outward representation of that. What's the something internally? Hold your finger here in 1 Peter and let's turn off to the left to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. <clears throat> it says, by one spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, whether we be Jews or Gen Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. <clears throat> I know there are people that teach you got to, you know, pray for a second blessing to get the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Why? Because Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to be in every believer forever. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, it says that every believer has the Holy Spirit as the down payment, the earnest of their inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Until Jesus comes to get you, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you. And Romans 8 and 9 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. So there's nothing of, you know, hanging around and praying for waiting for a second blessing. No. Okay. So that baptism which is how you're born again. You see, when you were born physically, you received or had by that time your old nature, your whatever kind of a person you're going to be. Some of you have noted that my wife is pretty quiet. Well, she's been that way her whole life. Okay, uh, uh, Nehemiah is not as quiet and withdrawn. He's been that way his whole life. But the day each of them was born again, they received a new nature who is created by God in the likeness of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it says that your new nature is created in, in, like, like God, is after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. Your new nature is completely holy, completely righteous, and you still have some of the, the characteristics of what kind of a person you were before. You know, it, it doesn't transform you into, you know, a chatterbox because you used to be real quiet or vice versa. Uh, but it, you've got a new nature, okay? <clears throat> that, that baptism, the one that placed you into the body of Christ and simultaneously gave you a brand new nature because you were just born again, that one does save you. So which kind of baptism are we talking about here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses, verse 21 and 22, when it says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us. We're talking about the real baptism, not the picture one, the one we go get dunked in the creek or in the baptismal font or whatever they've got. 
I was, in my case, it was the headwaters of the Wilson River. Believe me, it was cold water. Uh, <clears throat> but, see, that baptism didn't save me. That baptism didn't separate me from the world. In some parts of the world, it would. Uh, some parts of the world that are either heavy Islamic or heavy uh, Orthodox Jewish would recognize that if the water baptism, you have identified yourself publicly with the person of Jesus Christ, and they'll say, and then we don't want any more to do with you. You're separated from them in that sense. They will reject you because of the baptism. But in general, no, it didn't separate me from the world. There were people baptized that day that I later decided I don't think they were even saved. Okay, so what did they get out of it? Wet, same as me. Okay, A believer who decides he or she wants to be baptized gets wet, but they're obedient and wet. They're taking a step of obedience. An unbeliever who gets baptized just got wet. It didn't do anything spiritually. By, by the way, it didn't do anything spiritually for, an, for a believer either. It doesn't change you or anything. But... But the unbeliever may even get a false sense of security thinking baptism saved me. And maybe even specifically because of this verse, because there's people that do teach that. They teach baptismal regeneration, that you're born again by getting water baptized. Sorry, that's not true. <clears throat> In fact, when Paul talked about it, he says, I'm really thankful I didn't baptize any of you guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, read it. I'm really, sad, really glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. So, well, let's see. There was so-and-so and so-and-so. Uh, oh, yeah, and so-and-so's family. Other than that, uh, if there were any, I don't remember. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the preaching of the cross be made of none effect. Baptism wasn't the point. It was only a reflection of what the Holy Spirit did inside of every believer. Okay. So, yes, the flood separated Noah from the world and the world from Noah. Our baptism into the body of Christ did separate you from the world and the world from you. It also gave you a new nature so that you were separated from sin. Your old sin nature, God no longer sees as you. It's still there, still resident. You still got to deal with it. But he's not concerned about that. He says, I couldn't fix that one anyway. That's why I gave you a new nature. So... You're separated from sin, too. God says, no, that's not part of you. This is your new nature. Walk with me. Come, walk with me. Come away with me, my love. That's what it's teaching. <clears throat> so the question we want to ask as we go into 1 Peter chapter 4 is, what do we do now? All right? If I've been born again, if I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, as I, I have a new nature, maybe I've been water baptized, maybe I haven't. That's not even the issue this morning. What do I do now as a believer? Well, let's read it again. It says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. Remember we talked about putting on the armor of God. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I want to be thinking the way Jesus thought. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh. I don't know how much time I've got left. I'm 66. I figure 15, 16 years, maybe. Maybe not. My mom was dead at 65. My dad was dead at 76. Uh, average among men is around 70. So some of you guys are way past your pull date. Uh, you know, better if served by November 15th. Yeah, we found some, what was that stuff? Oh, it was a waffle mix. No, no, that one, we never found a date. There's something else, though, we found that was uh, better if used by 1995, I think. 
You know what? It was, it was fine. We eat it. It's great. <laughs> it's only 25 years old. It was completely sealed, and it was something that was pretty much imperishable. And that's the nature of the human soul, too. Your soul, your spirit, the immaterial portion of you is going to live forever. It doesn't have a pull date. Your body's got a pull date. Fortunately, it's not stamped on the back of your collar or someplace where anybody can look at it and say, yeah, yeah, tomorrow's the day, bub. But God does know when the pull date is. Each of us has one. So what are we going to do with the rest of our time? That's the question. Verse 1 here says, what am I going to do? Verse 2, I mean, with the rest of my time in the flesh. Am I going to live it according to the desires of men or according to the will of God? Okay, that's the decision. Moment by moment, day by day. <clears throat> we talked about this idea last week, that we are dead to sin. And we're alive to God. Jesus took our place under the wrath of God so that as our he died as our representative. <clears throat> he literally died in our place, and according to God's law, that means we are dead. I brought this up before when Alexander IV sold, I think it was him, sold Alaska to the United States to use special ink, a special pen, special paper. How did he manage to do this thing so that this huge tract of land and all the people in it sold out from under Russia? He had the authority to do it. He could have done it with a piece of chalk if he wanted to, but he didn't. You know, they had a fancy document someplace, signed and sealed and delivered. And then all the people in Ketchikan, that was a Russian town, Sitka, that was a Russian town, all of those people had a choice to make. Take all the money you saved and get passage back to Siberia, because that's the closest part of Russia, and go back to wherever you were in Russia, or stay where you are and embrace your new reality. You're a United States citizen now. I think most of them probably stayed there. They live better there. They're no longer going to have Russian taskmasters coming and taking away stuff. Say, so, yeah, that's good for the crown. You don't get to keep that. Okay. What do we do now? See? We have been moved out of the old kingdom of darkness where we were into the kingdom of his dear son, as he puts it. We've been moved into the kingdom of light. <clears throat> what are you going to do now? What are you going to do with the rest of your time? <clears throat> the debt's been paid. God's law, God's holiness, God's justice has been satisfied. The law is no, no longer pointing its finger at you, saying you've got to die because you've broken the law. It says you're dead. I've got nothing more to say to you. Okay. So what are we going to do now? Well, he says that since I'm dead to sin and I'm dead to the law and I am resurrected with Jesus, in fact, I've quoted this a hundred times here in church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, get it through your head, you're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That's a fact. I don't feel it. Believe me, I don't feel it. But it's a fact. I'm seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Okay. Then he's given us a job to do. He's given us things to do here on earth. And the word is, get on it. Do it. You only got so much time. We all originally had our roots in the world. Verse, verses, uh, verse 3, it says, For in the time past of our life, uh, excuse me, for the time past of our life may suffice, that ought to be enough in other words, suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. You've done it. Okay, you've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and it still stinks. 
When we walked in lasciviousness and lust and excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. We've been there. We all originally had our roots in the world. Our background there should be enough. Consider that to be enough of that. You've done it. You've already done those things to one degree or another. You don't need to go back for more. Even now, we still live in the world, but God says we're no longer of the world. So all the things that were once common to one degree or another in most people's lives are no longer normal behavior for the believer. Whatever was normal back then is not normal now. God says we're to have changed. Now, looking at that short list that he just gave us in verse 3, maybe you look at it and say, well, I never did any of those. Okay. All he did is give you a short list, some generalities. If you think you don't fit into that list, please, on your own time, go back and read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And what you're going to see is that someplace in there, I'll guarantee, yeah, you do fit. Because it includes things like disobedience to parents and argumentativeness and gossip and thinking bad thoughts. <laughs> you know, if you don't think you fit into that list, we need to have a talk. But <clears throat> the fact is, we do fit. And he says, we don't fit there anymore. Yes, your past did, but it ought to be enough. And the people around you will think it's strange that you don't go with them anymore to do what you used to do. Wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They'll start making accusations <clears throat> against you. You think you're too good for us? No, that's not it. And the they says, who shall give account to him who is ready to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. That's how the world sees us now. You're the oddball. Yes, you don't fit anymore. You're an outsider. <clears throat> they see you as strange, and they'll say bad things about you because of your new position. Now, that attitude, that response is not limited to spiritual things. <clears throat> uh, where I worked at Gunderson for 33 and a third years, um, the inspection department had a lot of guys there that were fairly well-trained as inspectors, weld inspectors. Uh, some of them were pretty good, some of them weren't. They were just appointed to that job, okay? But see, there's a national certification available for that job. And I, amongst others, went and got that certification. I wasn't part of that department. I was outside it. I was teaching people. But the people within that department who took it on themselves to go get that training and spent a thousand, actually it was more than a thousand dollars of their own money to go take that test and pass it, were immediately ostracized by the inspectors who didn't do it. And they were harassed until they either left that department or left the company entirely. Why? Of all things, you guys do need this. Well, they changed eventually. I mean, 20 years down the road, they finally changed. It was actually because upper management forced the the middle management character, I don't know what his title was, but the guy that was in charge of that department, they forced him to take my class and certify, take the national exam. They paid for it, but he had to pass that. And all of a sudden, he saw the value in it and started requiring his guys, get this training, you need this. Cool. But up until then, yeah, they, they brutally oppressed anyone who took that test. Why? I don't know. It certainly wasn't anything that hurt anybody. But... They made a mess of other people's lives because of it. And the world will do that because you belong to Jesus as well. Okay. 
they think it's strange. And it's a pretty sad thing when people do that, but it parallels how the world feels about Christians. They think you're goody two-shoes, or you, you maybe you think you're holier than us, or any other kind of a- accusations, that you're a hypocrite, you're a phony. <clears throat> now, verse 5, it says, Who shall give account to him who is ready to judge the quick and the dead? He uses a, a word, an old English word, quick, that simply means alive. We still use that word a little bit, not very often, in that way. When you cut your fingernails too close, and they're either sore or maybe even bleeding, you say, yeah, I accidentally cut into the quick. It means the living flesh. This fingernail itself is not alive. But the part that it's attached to, if you cut into that, that hurts. Okay? And if somebody says something ugly to you and it hurts your feelings, you might say, oh, what they said, just cut me to the quick. Okay, that's what that means. Welcome, Brother Jim. Glad you're here. So in this passage, the word quick has nothing to do with fast reflexes. I know there's westerns and movies and stuff talking about the quick and the dead, that you're either quick or you're dead. It has nothing to do with that. The fact is the, the, the word meaning has changed over the centuries. But it says, for this cause, verse 6, the gospel was preached, past tense, unto them who are, present tense, dead, that they might be judged, future tense, according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, I first read this. I really liked seeing the changing in tense because it meant that I could see that, okay, the gospel came to them while they were dead. They are now dead. They are looking to... Actually, I was thinking physically alive at first. They're now dead, and they're looking forward to coming judgment. But then I realized the rest of the verse says they will be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God. So I had to change my thinking on this, go back and see it again, and realize that the gospel was given to me while I was spiritually dead. In fact, it was given many, many times. People, people knew I liked to read, and they'd give me these salvation tracts. I read hundreds of them probably, scores of them for sure, and uh, I didn't, the problem was I didn't believe them. See, I'd read them, it says, pray this prayer and be born again, so I'd pray the prayer and nothing happened. Why? Because I didn't believe. The Bible doesn't say pray this prayer and be born again. It says believe the gospel and be born again. Some of them say sign this track. Some of them say, you know, oh, I don't know, get up and go to church, pray, whatever. The thing is, none of those things were what the Bible said. The Bible said believe. He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me has, present tense, everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation. That's future tense. I have Jesus' personal promise that God is never going to condemn me, period. Finally, it says that I have crossed over from death into life. In Greek, that's actually perfect tense. It means it was something that happened in the past that has permanent results in the future. I'm never going back. I can't go back. The door was closed behind me when I got aboard the ark. Okay. I'm permanently one of the living. So, question again, what do I do now? What do I do next? Well, verses 7 through 11, he gives us some answers to that. That's what we've been building up to. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity. That's the agape love. The King James translated agape charity in most cases. Uh, when it was a noun, when it was a verb, they just used love. Uh, 
But the problem is the agapao love is not the same as the phileo love. I, I, they're simply not the same word. They're not the same context, uh, con, concept. But this is the agape love. Have fervent charity amongst yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And then it says you use hospitality one to another without grudging. And finally it says as every man has received the gift, even so minister, the word means serve, the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister or serve, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that in excuse me, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, let's go back over this. The first point was be sober. And that's not as opposed to drunk. It means take it seriously. Realize, I only got so much time left, and I don't know how much it is. It might be an hour, it might be a day, it might be 20 years, it might be less. I don't know. Okay, All of us are looking forward to the coming of Christ. And when he comes back, however far you got along with the job that he had for you to do, that's as far as you're going. You don't get to say, I did one moment, Lord, I'll have this finished in a few minutes. No, once that trumpet sounds and the rapture happens, we're gone. Praise God, we're gone. Looking forward to that. But I'm fearful for those that are left behind. Okay? Because it's not going to be good for them. So be sober. Take this seriously. The second thing he says, be in prayer. Watch, therefore, with prayer. This is a serious thing, too. It's not to be taken lightly. By the way, it doesn't just mean saying prayers. A lot of people say prayers because what they grew up with maybe in a liturgical church where they had memorized prayers. Ann and I found in our house a little book this big from the 1800s, uh, Book of Common Prayer. And they had prayers for everything, you know? Having a problem here? What kind of problem? Oh, there it is. Read this prayer. Is that praying? No, it's reciting somebody else's prayer. If they even prayed it, who knows what they did. What is prayer? Well, talking to God is one thing. But it involves all kinds of things. Confession is one of them. Adoration or worship is another. Supplication, where we're praying for each other, is another. And thanksgiving is one. Praise fits right in with worship and adoration. So all these things are what it means to pray. I try to remember to start with confession because I know that God says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I don't always remember. I, somebody told me the other day about something happening and, you know, my outpouring of prayer immediately was for God's mercy for that person. I didn't stop and think about it. Well, let's see. Okay, i got to correct. confess my prayers for my sins first, and then I need to spend some time in worship. No, right now I'm going to the throne of grace. By the way, I had a, a friend. I, yeah, actually, he's still alive. I remember hearing recently he's still alive. In fact, Keisha, your mom knows him, Dun Gordy. He's a pastor out of Alabama. And he told me, a Christian should be prepared at all times to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Okay, I don't do a necessarily real good Alabama accent, but the key idea there is correct. Yeah. So when somebody says, Chad, can you pray for this person? Yeah, I want to pray right then. I don't have to go through some format in my head. I want to be ready to pray right then. If they ask for teaching, then while they're asking what that their question is, I'm praying for wisdom because I know I don't have any on my own. I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to speak through me. I know that 
If I'm gifted to do that, then I need to be speaking of the oracle of God. I need God to speak through me. He says, above all, love one another with the agape love. This covers a lot of faults. If you're loving somebody else with the agape love, you're going to deliberately overlook the things that you wouldn't like about them. You know, I had somebody criticize me because of the look on my face when I sniff. Huh? Well, what it was is when I sniff, my nostrils collapse. So if I stretch my face that way, when I sniff, the nostrils stay open. And I got allergies a lot, you know? So, yeah, I was doing a lot of sniffing, and it was really bugging this person. I said, then you've got too easy a life if the look on my face is bothering me, you when I sniff. <clears throat> they backed off. They didn't criticize me anymore about that. But we're to love one another with agape love. It covers a multitude of sins. Wherever the faults are that are in somebody else, you can cover it with God's love. Finally, it says, be hospitable. The word translated hospitality literally means the love of the stranger. Philozenon is what it usually means. Xenophobia is when we're afraid of strange things, fear of the unknown. Phila is the, the phileo love, the brotherly love. Brotherly love towards a stranger is exactly what hospitality means. And here it's not strangers. He's saying you do this toward a stranger, won't you at least do it for other believers? that you reach out to them as if, I mean, just with the normal courtesies of life, somebody has a need and you meet it because of the hospitality that God calls us to do for strangers, and now he's saying apply that to, to other believers. There shouldn't, this completely should rule out the attitude of, well, you know, I don't feel like I know them well enough to want them in my house. Okay, I can understand that feeling, but God says I'm to extend hospitality toward the brethren. I extend the love of the of the stranger toward those that are not strangers. Interesting concept, huh? I'm bound to extend hospitality to every believer as a bare minimum, serving to meet the needs of the brethren. Finally, in verses 10 through 11, he talks about our gifting. He only lists a few of them here. If you want to see more extensive lists, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and there's a few others. But those three places, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the office gifts, the gifts of Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 12 talks about service gifts specifically. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the gifts specifically of the Spirit across the board. There's another kind of gift mentioned several times in Acts and in the epistles called the gift of God. And there's two of them. One is salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. You don't earn it. You don't do anything to get it. It's a gift, a free gift, based on his grace and your faith. That's all. By grace, you're saved through faith, plus nothing. Okay. The other one is the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he gives it to every single believer. It's a gift. Okay. Those are the gifts of God. The gifts of Christ are in Ephesians 4. The gifts of the Spirit are in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The ones in Romans chapter 12 are primarily about service gifts, though. <clears throat> it says, as every man has received the gift, whatever your gift is, doesn't matter. Even so, minister, that means serve, the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What does stewardship mean? It means using wisely the things you've been given to work with. Okay. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's given you grace, then use it wisely. 
If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister or serve, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now Peter closes this passage by stating that whatever my gift or yours is, it's to be used to serve, that's what minister means, in order to bless the assembly. If it's a speaking gift, then I need to recognize that I'm acting as a mouthpiece for God. It's not up to me to decide what needs to be said. I, I, I throw myself on the mercy of God and ask him to give me wisdom. I need to be very careful what I say and how I say it, how I present it, because I can cause offense. It's something that I'm consciously aware of and fearful that I'll mess up and damage somebody else's walk with God because I spoke in it, you know, inadvisedly in some way. But if I serve in any capacity, I'm to serve as God has gifted me to serve, always recognize that I'm serving him, not just people. So the result should be that regardless of what my gifts may be, exercising those gifts should bring glory to God through Jesus, not glory to me through pride. It's very, very easy to fall into that trap. <clears throat> I remind myself regularly that the flock belongs to God. Whenever I, whatever I do towards the flock, I do it as a service to him. It's not for personal self-aggrandizement or to seek honor or to even you know, desire the limelight. If I had my way about it, I was just telling somebody before class, if I had my way about it, I'd sit in the back row and just take a very, very low profile. And the times that I have tried to do that, it wasn't long before God put me back into teaching. I, that was the job he gave me to do. I didn't ask for it. I've never asked to teach a class. Uh, I didn't ask to be pastor here. Uh, God gives the assignment. Uh, if, you, if you have a problem with that kind of idea, thinking that I ought to have some kind of spiritual calling where I'm just prezapped by God from on high, go back and read Jeremiah the first couple of chapters because he had a call from God too, and he told God no. I can't do that. I'm a child. He says, don't you tell me. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> he says, I prepared you for this before you were born. When I formed you in your mother's womb, it was for this particular purpose. Now, what does that do to the people that think you're not a human until you're born? Huh? When I formed you, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I ordained you to this job to go and speak to Israel. Okay. Yeah. God has plans for that baby. Okay. But it doesn't always, it's not always the kind of call that people talk about. My call is from God's word. He says that the flock needs feeding. You feed it. Okay. Each of us has a responsibility before God. Each of us knows that we can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's all he says for us to do is to get on with the job. Recognize your shortcomings. Confess your faults. And go back to God and say, okay then, what do you need me to do? Present yourself for service. Pray that God will make you usable. I'd like to go back and point out something just briefly. In verse 22, the previous chapter, he says that Jesus has gone into heaven. He's on the right hand of God, and angels and authorities and powers are subject unto him. Okay? That's kind of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. He says, all power is given to me. The word there is exousia. The Greek word for power is exousia there, not dun dunamis. Exousia means authority, all authority. How much? 
It says that all the angels and everybody is under him. He has full authority. And he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. If he has authority over all those things, and we already saw in the Gospels that he has authority over the physical nature as well, where he can curse the fig tree and in a couple of hours the whole thing's withered, you couldn't do that with Roundup, crossbow. You, I mean, the, the flamethrower is about the only thing you could do it with as a human. He just spoke to it, and the thing was withered completely when they came walking back out of town. Right? And, and on the storm, the, the disciples said, Master, don't you care? We're going to drown. We're going to die. Wake up. And he woke up and says, well, what are you so worried about? And told the storm, hush. Peace, be still. And it says, instantly, the wind and the waves ceased. I don't know if you know much about physics. You can, a wind can die down suddenly. Waves don't. That energy has to go someplace. There's tons and tons and tons of water moving, thousands of tons of water moving with those waves. And it's, that energy's got to go someplace. But it says that it all leveled out right then, and they were suddenly on the beach at the place where they're going. If he's got that kind of authority, doesn't he have enough authority to call on you and say, let's work together? Doesn't he? You're already seated with him in the heavenlies. Doesn't he have enough authority to say, I want you to join me in my work today because that's what this is about. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we don't know, each of us, I, I don't know for anybody, even including myself, what you want me to do next. And I'm calling on you to teach our hearts, to open our, our up to your spirit, that we would look at your word and see what am I supposed to be doing and how would you like me to do that and where do you want me to do it? And then lead us. We, we want to walk with you. Some of us are going to be staying here. Some of us are going to be going elsewhere. Some of us are going to be changing something we're doing. Some of us are going to be doing the exact same thing we've been doing because that's what you already had called us to do. We don't know. But we do want to be walking with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.